Hello, everyone, and welcome to Beyond the Surface. My name is Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I'm very interested in talking to interesting people who are performers. They're everything from CEOs to coaches to athletes to musicians to actors. Anyone who considers himself to be a performer and is an expert at their craft. So what we will do is ask questions to dive deep and dig deep into their mindset, into their journey, into their story, what makes them unique, what makes them special, so that hopefully it can help you as you continue on your journey for development and as you go beyond the surface with yourself as well. I'm extremely excited to welcome David Falk to the Beyond the Surface podcast. David is an agent. Uh, He's worked predominantly in the NBA, but he also spent a lot of time working in the NFL and also with tennis players back in the day. Uh, David is really one of the top agents in the world and has been for quite some time. Uh, He has worked with athletes such as James Worthy, Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, Allen Iverson, John Stockton, uh, Alonzo Mourning, Dikembe Mutombo, the list goes on and on. And then he also worked in football with guys like Boomer Esiason. And today he works with a lot of different NBA players as well. Jeff Green, Otto Porter, Jared Sullinger. Uh, you've, you've heard of a lot of the athletes that David is, has worked with beyond uh, behind the scenes. Uh, and David has such an interesting perspective because he started out really building his own niche and, and creating his own career. And Uh, carving his own path and did it in a time where people weren't doing exactly what he was doing with the type of athletes that he was working with. So he's really a pioneer in a lot of ways and it's amazing that he still is at it today. He is a really bright, innovative guy uh, and he also is someone who likes to think outside the box but also tell it like it is. So I think you'll enjoy his story, his journey, and also his mindset for how he looked at his ability to do his job at the most elite level that one could do their job. So uh, you'll hear about him in business, you'll hear about him in negotiation, and you'll hear about him developing relationships. So I'm excited to bring David Falk to Beyond the Surface. And just a heads up, because David and I spoke for a while, we're going to break this podcast into two parts. So this will be part one. So I hope you enjoy it. David, what I'd like to do to start is just start with your upbringing. Tell me about uh, your family, uh, what it was like in the Falk household growing up. So my parents were like an oil and water marriage. My, my mother came from, my both parents were first generation Americans. Uh, my mother's father immigrated from a small town in Poland in 1905, came to New York. He was a scholar in the old country and uh, owned a candy store in, uh, in the Bronx. Um, he had five kids, they all went to college. My mom graduated college when she was 19 years old from Hunter College in New York at a time when most women didn't even think of going to college. Um, my dad uh, never finished high school, came from a family, everybody was in the meat business. Um, and they got married at 30, which is pretty old back in the day. My dad was in the, the Army. He served uh, in World War II on the front lines for five years. He was in uh, North Africa and Italy and Anzio, some of the tough places. He went in as a private, came out as a private. Uh, he was a fun guy, not very disciplined. And uh, You say not disciplined, what do you mean by that? Um, you know, he, my dad, my dad, uh, was a gambler. 
he, he loved the horses. Uh, he was a compulsive gambler, and he always believed that the next day he was going to go to the racetrack and hit the lottery and not have to work anymore. My mom came from a very overachieving family, and so in a very bizarre way, my mom really stressed education because she was a teacher. My dad stressed education because he didn't have it. And I, I think my DNA being more like my mom, um, I didn't need a lot of motivation. I was a pretty self-motivated person, but I got sort of pounded by both directions from my parents. And so I always knew from the early... Pounded in what way? Well, they really, they really emphasized achievement. Like my mom, my mom's dad was a very driven person. And there's probably nothing his kids did that was good enough. Hmm. Um, he constantly pushed them to do more. My mom inherited the gene. I inherited the gene. Uh, I think my younger daughter Dana inherited the gene. And so I can remember I came home from high school as a junior. I took the SATs for the first time, and I got like I think right around like 1,400, which is like in the top, you know, one tenth of one percent. My mom didn't talk to me for months. She was so unhappy. She didn't understand why I didn't get like 1600. And I was, you know, I, I thought I did pretty well. I know I could have done a little bit better. Uh, but that's the way my mom was. She was very perfectionist? Per Absolutely. Compulsive perfectionist. But dad, when you say lack discipline, and I think of anyone who's going to be gambling, there can't be an element of perfectionism no. in that aspect. No, my dad, my dad was always sort of looking for the easy way out. Mm -hmm. He was always looking for like, the quick hit that would solve all the problems. My mom was a planner. She was very goal-oriented, very, very highly motivated. She spoke about seven or eight languages. She worked in Washington, D.C. during World War II for Nelson Rockefeller mm. in the Department of Inter-American Affairs as an interpreter. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller then became the governor of New York. So she, she was a classics major in college in Greek and Latin. She had a master's degree in Spanish. She spoke... She spoke Hebrew, she spoke Russian, German, Italian. I mean, she was a very, very accomplished woman, very uh, well-read, do uh, opera and ballet. Uh, she was a Scrabble crossword nut. <laughs> uh, and she was a very, very uh, accomplished woman. But diverse. So it sounds like there's a lot. It's not a narrow focus, per se. There was a lot of different interests and hobbies, but she had an intellectual capacity to take things on and go full force and learn them that way. Absolutely. And and as I said, learning was something that was really emphasized in our household. Um, I never had a doubt when I was a young man that I was going to go to college. Um, Why was that? Because it was expected. Yeah. It was like, it wasn't like it was optional in our house. Um, it was absolutely expected. Um, I grew up in a, in a very working class town in Long Island uh, called Seaford, New York, uh, where Jim Valvano was from. And uh, I went to high school in a town called Levittown, which was built for soldiers coming back from World War II. They had houses that were like $5,800 hmm. you know, for GIs. Um, and almost everyone in our town were working class people. They were skilled laborers like my dad, butchers, carpenters, steam fitters, uh, electricians. You know, a few professional people for the most part. It was a very working class town with working class values. And and um, I knew that if I wanted to improve myself, I didn't want to be a working class. I worked 
from the time I was nine years old. I worked in my dad's butcher shop. I worked as a busboy. I worked driving trucks. I worked um, flipping burgers and fries. Uh, and I enjoyed it. Were you working because your parents told you to or because you wanted to? I had to. My parents didn't have very much money. And if I wanted to buy a baseball glove or a bat or, you know, a bike, you know, my parents gave me, you know, very limited allowance. Um, and so I enjoyed work. You know, it gave me a good feeling. And you said worker class values. What were some of those values that you still have with you today? Well, I never, you know, I never expected anyone would give me something. If the things I wanted, I, I knew I had to accomplish them by myself. It wasn't, it wasn't heroic. It was just... It was just the real world for me. Um, and I knew if I wanted to go to college, I was going to probably have to help myself go through. My parents really couldn't afford it. Um, and so, and I was comfortable with that. It didn't, I didn't feel underprivileged. I was just normal for where I grew up. I mean, everybody, everybody worked. And what were you like socially in high school? Uh, what were you like academically in high school? You, you mentioned getting good SATs, but that doesn't always correlate with doing well academically. I mean, I was a very good student in high school. I had a class of about a little under 700. I was the 19th best student in my class. I, it came relatively easy to me, so I, I worked at it, but I didn't, I wouldn't say I gave everything I had that I spent all my time studying. I loved playing ball. Uh, you know, it's funny, until I got to the fifth grade, I was sort of like a B student. In the fifth grade, I had a teacher who was very young. He was 21 years old. He just graduated from St. John's named Richard Maynard. And he motivated me. He hit it, struck a chord, and I became a straight-A student, like, basically for the rest of my life. Do you life. remember a specific conversation or something no, that he said? No, it wasn't anything he said to me. It was, it was just his enthusiasm. Like, he... He... He really motivated me to take a different perspective. And he also taught me how to play basketball. Like in the fifth grade, he took us out to the playground during lunch break, and he taught us all how to play basketball. I fell in love with basketball when I was about 10 years old. It's amazing. My fifth grade teacher, Mr. Graham, <laughs> could dunk. Really? And that was a big thing. Like toward the end of uh, school, he would go out to the playground, and in fifth grader seeing a guy dunk. It's a big deal, let alone having a male elementary school teacher. So there, there's something to that. So you go to high school. What were you, I'm trying to get a picture of who you were. So uh, I was, you know, it's interesting. I look back, and I was born in late August. So I was very young for my grade. My two best friends were born in December and February. They were almost a year older than me. And I want to say I was shy, but I wasn't really outgoing. I mean, people who know me now in business... Uh, my good friend Tony Kornheiser, you know, labels me the bird of prey. Would be stunned how low key I was <laughs> when I was younger. Um, introverted? I, no, I wasn't introverted at all. I wasn't shy. I would say I was more private. You know, I, I enjoyed. I had great friends that I spent a lot of time with. My best friend uh, Reed Kahn, I've known since the fourth grade. He's uh, like a brother to me. But I was very comfortable being alone. Like I'd go out to the playground and shoot baskets for two or three hours by myself as much as I would enjoy playing three-on-three. Three. Um, my mom really got me into crossword puzzles at an early age, word games, Scrabble. Um, and so if I were alone, I was very comfortable myself. Um, if I was you know, with my friends, I could play ball all day long. Did your parents ever like label you smart? 
Like no, no, because it was expected. My mom expected that I would do well in school, um, and a really funny thing happened. So, in fourth grade, I moved from Queens, maybe five miles to Long Island. It's right across the border. Maybe like moving from PG County to Montgomery County. And my fourth grade teacher in Long Island was a woman named Barbara Leonhard. She was a she was a single woman teacher. And my mom was a teacher. So at the end of fourth grade in the parent teacher conference, she told my mom that I was a very good, like B level student. I never really amount to anything. And it infuriated my mother because it went, the, went against the grain of everything that you know she believed in as a very high high achieving person. And as I said, in fifth grade I sort of hit my stride, did really well in school in fifth and sixth grade. And in sixth grade, my teacher, John Reefer, told me, look, you've got great IQ scores, you've got great you know, scores and all these standardized tests. I could put you into the honors class if you want. I don't recommend it because there's sort of a bunch of nerds, but you really qualify for it. And I want to be in honors because most of my friends were in honors. And so in seventh grade, I went into honors, and I was like adrift at sea because... All my friends had taken sort of AP courses in sixth grade. They'd taken all the seventh grade courses. I had taken sixth grade courses. So in seventh grade, I was like lost in math. And uh, it took me probably a couple years to sort of catch up. And I really had some doubts about myself you know, as a student. But by the, eighth, by the time of the eighth grade, it sort of all sunk in. And you know, I, I did well in school. I, I did really well in school. It came easy. Um, and I always loved playing ball. I wasn't very good at it, but I played everything. I was, I was, I was the kind of person. I had really good form. I could throw a football really far. I could throw a baseball far. I was a really good shooter in basketball. I couldn't handle it very well. I couldn't rebound, <laughs> but I tried. I tried really hard to perfect my form, um, and I loved. I played football every day in the fall. I played quarterback. I played basketball in the winter. Played softball every day. Like you know, come down to Washington and people from like Potomac or Bethesda, they went to summer camps. We, none of us could afford to go to camp. We just played ball every day. You know, you play a doubleheader from morning till night. When it got dark, you'd go home and have dinner. And we were all happy. Like, Did you grow I, up a Yankees fan, Knicks fan, Mets? What it's was... a funny story. So I grew up a Dodgers fan. I love Sandy Koufax. I grew up a Lakers fan because my idol in all the sports was Jerry West, mm. Mr. Clutch. Uh, and when I was about 13... In New York, I saw my first ever NFL game, which is the Cowboys versus the Redskins. And the Cowboys had the world's fastest human, Bob Hayes. Uh, and the first game I ever saw, I fell in love with the Cowboys because I, I thought Bob Hayes' speed was... We can just stop the interview right now <laughs> as, as a lifelong Washington Redskins fan. But you can go ahead. <laughs> and so, you know, it was sort of an anomaly. Um, being in New York, I didn't root for any New York teams. Uh, never have. Um, was your dad into sports? No, nah, my mom was. My mom loved basketball. My dad loved the horses. And um, I didn't understand the horses. I didn't... Do you have memories of him bringing you there? Or was that something separate no, that he I did never, on his own? I, I never went to the racetrack until I was in college. My mom was very, very negative, you know, because she knew he had a, he had a problem. Right. You know, controlling, controlling the gambling. Um, but um, I loved... Of all the sports, I mean, I really followed baseball closely. In Long Island, there was a newspaper at the time called Newsday, which is an afternoon newspaper. So unlike almost every newspaper in America, when you got home from school at 3, there was no box scores that were late games. There was no such thing as a late game. 
And even though I was a big Dodger fan, I loved Sandy Koufax, my number one favorite baseball player was Roberto Clemente, mm. who I think came the closest to hitting 400 maybe of any person since Ted Williams. And every day I got home and I'd look at the box scores and see was he two for four, three for five, and figure out his batting average. And um, I love baseball, I love basketball. Um, and over time, you know, I, I came to love football. Just a quick question about the family dynamic. So you came to understand that your dad had a gambling issue. Was that something you were aware of in high school, middle school, or well, something? I said college, yeah. born in college. My dad was a really fun guy. My friends loved my dad because he he cursed a lot. You know, he was a real regular kind of a guy. He wasn't a snob, and he was almost like an adolescent. He was like more of a friend, you know, than a dad. But he was very old school, and he thought like the dad was like the czar, what the dad said went. And, you know, I was a very rational person. And so we'd have discussions, and I thought he was wrong. The idea that the dad could be wrong, like, didn't exist in his mind. And I guess it was good training for being a lawyer, because, um, you know, I would try to, I won't say argue with him, I would try to reason with him. But when he took a position, like, like that was it. My mom, on the other hand, was really into into logic. You know, if you wanted to discuss a point, whatever, you know, she'd make you talk it through, explain the reasons for it. Uh, she, she was very thorough, uh, very, very, very highly intelligent woman. And, you know, she was like my life mentor. When I was very young, she imbued in me a philosophy that sort of stayed with me my whole life that I would say is my guiding principle like that I've tried to pass on both to my clients and my children, she would say, always shoot for the stars and never settle for second best. Set very high goals for yourself and go after them. Don't be satisfied with a bee. You know, bees weren't, you know, bees were for honey. They weren't for getting grades. Don't be mediocre. Exactly. Go for the gusto. And, and um, so from a very early age, it was almost subconscious. It wasn't a conscious thing that I'd go out and try to... But I, but I knew when I was in high school, I had a good, good grades to go to college. And, and from an early age, I had a very um, sort of adolescent desire to be a lawyer. Um, What's the first memory that you have of having that desire? Because that's not, I don't think of uh, most adolescents having that desire. What? Yeah, it's a funny story. You know, there are things in your life that people say that really stick with you. You don't know why they stick with you, what the, the reason was. So when I was in fifth grade, we had a sort of a post-end-of-the-year ceremony where people would have these autograph books that were like five by seven colored pieces of paper, and you'd write to your friends like, too young to drink four roses or, you know, cornball stuff. And this one student in my class, who wasn't a particularly close friend, named Gregory Mallow, wrote my autograph book, You Should Be a Lawyer, because you're a good arguer. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not even probably an English word. I don't think the word arguer is proper syntax. But like for some reason, that observation always stuck with me. And, and so from an early age, like you ask kids what they want to be, they want to be a baseball player, they want to be an astronaut, they want to be a, a doctor. I always wanted to be a lawyer. Was there any connection between lawyering and money? No, it was just something, you know, I like I like to debate, if you will, and my mom fostered open discussions and debate uh, at home. 
uh, something I thought I was sort of good at. I really didn't know what being a lawyer meant. It wasn't like my dad was a lawyer and I wanted to be like my dad. Um, it was just something that I seemed to arbitrarily gravitate to and I sort of stuck to that goal all the way through college. So, so I sort of geared myself to being a lawyer. So take me to Syracuse, which is, I know, where you went to school, because that's where I went to school. Great place um, to go to school. Great place to be an orange person. So I um, had great grades in high school. You know, I had really good boards. I was the vice president of the Honor Society, managing Yeah, how'd school. you end up at a school like Syracuse? And as a funny <laughs> story, my guidance counselor, I applied to four Ivy League schools. I wanted to go to Cornell because it was in New York State and I had a state scholarship, which I needed. My guidance counselor had told me to apply to the University of Pennsylvania for my state school, and I didn't get in. And so if I listened to him, I probably would have been you know, driving a truck or something. But my best friend's guidance counselor told me to apply to Syracuse for state school. I didn't know a lot about Syracuse, and so I applied to Syracuse, and I literally got in the next day. And I never expected I'd go. And when the spring came, April 15th was the day the Ivy League schools let you know, I got rejected at Yale, I got rejected at Brown, I got rejected at Penn, and I got on the waiting list of Cornell. And my mom never got over it. And it was the absolute best thing that ever happened to me to go to Syracuse because um, it was really a fun place to go to school. They had a great, I ended up majoring in economics, they had a great economics department, Maxwell School of Syracuse's third right, highest ranked graduate school of social sciences. I met my wife. Uh, I met the two-star basketball players the first day of school, became two of my best friends for life. And it was just, I, I think college is a place where you have to sort of discover yourself socially, grow up. And Syracuse was like custom made for me to do that. I want to go back just a, a minute. Is getting rejected from those schools, was that the first real failure that you had yes. as a young person? and. How did that make you feel? How did you react to that? You shared your mom's perspective, um, but what was your perspective on it at that at that time? I, first of all, I was stunned. I was stunned that with my credentials that I wasn't able to get into one of those schools. I mean, the fact that I didn't get to Yale, Yale's pretty tough, but um, yeah, I was stunned, um, and I sort of felt that I had taken a step backwards in my journey, if you will, you know, to, towards what I wanted to get. Um, but I soon learned that there was a whole uh, group of students in Syracuse just like me who had really good credentials in high school that were sort of like maybe a half a step removed from the Ivy League and um, I was in an honors program as a, as a freshman and it was very it was very intellectually challenging. I mean I really took school really seriously my freshman year. Um, I was very fortunate because I had I had taken a lot of AP courses in high school, so I only had one. I passed out all my requirements as a freshman in Syracuse. I took Latin with all the Latin majors, took calculus, and when I was done freshman year, I had no requirements, hmm. um, which, which was great. Um, so, you, so you graduate from there with econ and with this idea, I want to be a lawyer. Absolutely. So next step is law school? So I was gravitated towards law school and almost had the same experience in law school I had coming out of high school. I applied to... Harvard, I applied to some really good law schools, uh, and I got into GW, I got into Boston University, and I got the waiting list to Georgetown. And my wife was in Boston, we were very serious by the time I applied to law school. And her parents lived in Boston. I loved her parents, but I didn't want to live right under their nose. So it was obviously I was going to come to Washington. And 
if I had waited, I finally got into Georgetown at the very end of the summer. But my best friend from fourth grade, he got into GW. We thought we lived together. Um, and it ended up being great because GW is in Foggy Bottom. And one of the great things about going to law school in Washington, D.C. is you have the federal government, you have all the nonprofits, you have trade associations, and you have a million law firms. I mean, uh, when I was in law school, there was a statistic that one out of every 25 males over the age of 25 was a lawyer. Hmm. And so I started working my second semester, first year, I worked for the Department of the Interior, for the Bureau of Land Management, then I worked for a big Chicago firm called Sibley & Austin. I worked throughout law school and I learned probably as much about the law working as I did in the classroom. At that point, is there any thought of sports law? Absolutely. There is. I want to say sports law. I had a very um, idealistic dream in college when I was a freshman, and I met these two star players on the freshman team who were on my floor, that when we all got to be seniors with a little bit of luck that I'd represent them. And one of them was the seventh leading scorer in the country. He was a great six-foot-two shooting guard. He actually got drafted by the NBA, and he ended up playing in Europe his first year. And I realized by the time it came time to perhaps represent him. I didn't have a clue what it would take to do it. So, uh, you know, he picked an agent, I went to law school, and I had this very uh, dream desire to combine my love of sports and a career in the law, but I really didn't know how to do it. It was, it was a very distant dream, something I thought about, but I didn't really have a plan or way to connect the two connect the dots. So you finish up law school and, and what's next? So what, what happened was starting my first year of law school I started networking. Um, my father-in-law who lived in Boston had a friend who was in the insurance business who knew a financial planner that represented a bunch of the Celtics and Red Auerbach at the first Boston company named Phil McLaughlin. He was the first person I ever met if you will in the sports industry. Great guy because I had a financial background. He said, I have a friend uh, who knows this guy in New York named Larry Fleischer, who's a lawyer who represents the NBA Players Association. I went up to meet Larry Fleischer, who was the number one agent in basketball at the time. Great guy, very smart guy, and he basically told me, look, I, I practice by myself. I don't have any associates or junior people. Um, you should meet some other guy. I met Bob Wolf in Boston, who was a legendary agent, representing Larry Bird. Doug Flutie, Derek Sanderson, and he basically told me the same thing. And so you ask, you know, did getting rejected by schools, I got rejected by the law schools, and now I'm sort of getting rejected by all these high-powered sports agents. It was, it was disconcerting. You know, I didn't lose my confidence, but maybe question how realistic was it I'd be able to pursue a career, but I kept meeting people. And when they all said, this was at a time when the business was just starting in the early 70s, Mark McCormick, I probably invented the business in 1969. Uh, and basically people were on their own. They, were, they didn't have these big firms like they have today, um, these integrated firms in marketing, and broadcasting. And they all said, if you're in Washington, there's a guy named Donald Dell, who's a lawyer who represents a lot of the tennis players. I didn't know anything about tennis. I barely played tennis. Um, and so after meeting all these people, I met Paul Tagliabue's boss at Covington and Burling, a guy named Hamilton Carruthers, who's the 
general counsel for the NFL. I met the general counsel for Major League Baseball, Arnold Porter. Uh, I met a lot of different people. And when you say meet these people, um, well, I think there's a, a vision or a version of uh, networking today that people see, whether it's social media or, you know, texting or calling or emailing. How, it sounds like you first leveraged a relationship that you had uh, through now your now wife's family. Right. Um, but how would you say networking was for you coming from this blue collar family? I would call people. I'd call people up and tell them that I was a law student at UW. I was interested in the sports area. Because I had met a few of these big, I said, I've already met with Larry Flasher, met with Bob Wolf. I actually got interviews. Um, and the interviews were really interesting. But the meetings with Larry and Bob, was that your relentlessness? Was that your... Oh, you, oh in part, sure. I mean, I was, I was hell-bent for leather to do everything I could to get into the, into the business. And what I learned is that most of these people weren't hiring anybody. It wasn't that my credentials weren't good enough. Maybe they weren't, but they just weren't hiring. These were all sole practitioners that had just backed into the business. Bob Wolf told me he met his first client. He was a lawyer in Boston. His first client was a big baseball player from the Pot Tigers named Earl Wilson. And the guy got into a car accident outside his be- that building and walked into the building and just literally walked into his office. So he was a lawyer and asked, can you help me with the car accident? Hmm. And he became Larry Bird's agent. And Fleischer was a tax lawyer, you know, the same kind of a situation. So um, I kept pursuing it, and each time you met someone, it gave you a platform to say, I've met these people, you know, I'd like to sit down and talk. And if I could hit the pause button sure. and be right next to you during that time in your life, what are you dreaming about? Like, what's the vision? What is the, what's the vision or dream that you had in your you head? Know, I didn't know exactly what it meant, but I wanted very strongly to connect being a lawyer and being in sports. Mm-hmm. You know, today, I think people have a much clearer vision of what that means. Are you going to be a general counsel to a team? Are you going to be the general counsel for Gatorade doing endorsement contracts with Michael Jordan and Dwayne Wade and Kevin Durant? Are you going to be uh, you know, working for a trading card company? Um, you know, are you going to work for a team doing contracts? You know, back then it was all hard. It's hard to imagine. This is 1973. It was 45 years ago, and it was it was all sort of uncharted territory. So I didn't know where the connection was, but I knew I wanted to try to be a lawyer and try to be in sports. And as I met each person, you know, you realize there were certain people, like like the people who counsels to the league, that were really lawyers doing collective bargaining agreements and those kinds of things, and. There were guys who were really agents that called themselves sports lawyers, like Bob Wolf and Larry Fleischer. Um, but there wasn't nearly as much variety as there is today. Like when I teach my students at Syracuse, there are hundreds of opportunities for people. I have a friend, you know, who's a lawyer who trains basketball players, um, Edon Rubin. Um, I don't know how much his law degree helps him in training, but he loves sports and he gravitated into training. It's interesting that you you phrase it like that because I always told people I wouldn't have gotten into psychology if there wasn't a sport component. And so when I heard about this thing, sports psychology, my mind went to the notion of I can work in my passion, which is sports, 
but I'd been around general managers, I'd been around head coaches, I'd been around sports. But what I loved most in this world was helping people. And so the psychology piece really became attractive to me. But even to even today, like the dream or the vision for me is just to work with interesting people that are competitive and performers and hopefully I can help them in some capacity. So I can relate to the notion of trying to morph to passions or interests together and not necessarily having a distinct vision of what that looks like because in some ways for you it was uncharted territories as far as you were innovating it in a lot of ways. Um, so you mentioned Donald Dell and um, walk me through that process because I know your background a little bit but everyone else may not. So walk me through your start and, and so what Donald Dell was a lawyer. Um, who had been Davis Cup captain in 1972. His team was Arthur Ashe, Stan Smith, Charlie Passerell, uh, Roscoe Tanner, Dennis Ralston. Martin. I mean, those were the best tennis players of that um, age. In the world. Right. They're the best Americans. They won the Davis Cup. They had sort of a mod squad approach for turtlenecks and sunglasses. They were cool. And he had a firm that did... 95% tennis. They were just sort of dabbling in basketball. I had five or six basketball players. And this is also relevant because for my generation, tennis, especially on the male side, has been pretty stale, even though we've had great tennis players over the last 20 years. Um, for my generation who grew up with the Michael Jordans of the world, um, can you just talk about the business of tennis as it was then compared to the business of basketball? Sure. So in, prior to 1969, tennis was basically an amateur sport. And the number one goal was to win the U.S. Open or Wimbledon. They were all amateur tournaments. You couldn't make money playing in the tournaments. And in 69, under the leadership of Jack Kramer, one of the great tennis players of all time and a tennis entrepreneur, they, quote, opened tennis and they allowed you know, pros to play play in the same tournament. So Arthur Ashe um, was one of the early guys, and he, he won the U.S. Open. Um, and Donald's business exploded. He had all these great young amateurs. All of a sudden, they're pros, and they're signing contracts for tennis rackets and shoes with Adidas and rackets at Wilson, and they represented country clubs like Doral. Um, and to me, the 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 vision I have in that regard is what golf is today in that way. Cause like we can all understand the golfers now are making a ton of money on tour. And then depending on what's in their bag, what they're wearing on their being. Uh, I mean, I just read today that just Jason Day is the number one golfer in the world. Just switched from Adidas to Nike. He's making $10 million for clothes and hats. And he's got a separate deal with Taylor made for golf clubs. He probably represents the club. Before he hits a ball on the tour, he's going to probably make $30, $40 million. Amazing. Um, that's with not nearly as much money, but back in the day, golf golf was much more understated. Tennis was exploding in America. People were playing tennis. It was becoming one of the top sports. The rackets would go, the technology was changing where people going from the old Jack Kramer wood rackets into head composite rackets. And, Wilson T2000 steel rockets that Jimmy Connors used. Can I get your perspective on this? Sure. What happened? Because, like, what happened? What happened with tennis? I think it's really... In simple. America, I should say. I think that 
I think you have to say, like, like tennis was like a 9.5 and golf was like a 2 in the 70s. Today, golf was like a 25 and tennis is like a 0.1 in America. In Europe, tennis is still very big. And I think you have to say that the combination of the amateur federations like the USTA, the mega deal makers like Donald Dahl and Mark McCormick really did not do a very good job managing the sport and growing it. Um, whereas golf, you know, got its act together, they organized the PGA, and it's become like a machine. But then what I start thinking of is like pre-Tiger, post-Tiger, right? Because, and I don't know the economics of golf and tennis um, that well, but like, Golf really blew up post Tiger. Not to say there weren't. Oh, I, th- I think golf blew Watson up. I think and golf blew up under the age of Palmer, Nicholas, okay. Player. You know, the, sort of that generation. You know, before Tiger came, I think Tiger accelerated it and hastened it. Um, but I think that I think that golf, as a business, has just been way better managed. And what happened in tennis? There was a top five player named Vitas Gerolitis who died. And he had a famous quote, he said, we are the game, the top five players are the game. And they really, perhaps that was true, they dominated people like Borg, Connors, McEnroe, Gerolitis, Guillermo Vilas, they dominated the game. Other than Tiger, no one dominates golf. I mean, one week it's Dustin Johnson, you know, one week, you know, it may be- Especially today. It's so competitive and the game is so humbling. And I think that that's a great part of golf. While Tiger did dominate for a period of time and people almost couldn't beat him, um, I just think golf has been way better managed as a business. Um, And it's sad, tennis has really, really fallen off in America now. In Europe, in Europe and South America, it's still pretty big. And it's pretty big on the women's side. I mean, Serena Williams has been a tremendous force, both Williams sisters in tennis, but but tennis and golf went in totally different directions. So I came to this firm, which was actually a law firm when I started working for Donald. I called up Donald Dell. I wrote him. I called him. I could never get a call return. And I'm a pretty competitive person. After a while, I started taking it personally. And one day I woke up at the height of my frustration and I couldn't get this guy on the phone. This guy was not Bob Wolf. He was not Larry Fleischer, you know. And I called him literally 17 times. Every 10 minutes, I called him. And when he finally ran out of excuses, he was in the men's room. He was at lunch. He was in a meeting. He was on the phone, you know. He finally took my call and he gave me an interview. He kept me waiting three hours in his office. And I told him I wanted a job, and he told me they weren't hiring. So I told him I'd go to work for free. So. In the summer between my second year and third, third year law school, I had a full-time job at Sidney and Austin. It's a very prestigious law firm here in Washington. I was in summer school. I took a course of all things in negotiations. I got married, and after I finished my job at Sidley and Austin at 6 o'clock, I'd walk across the street, and I worked for Donald for free from like 6 to 11 every night, the whole summer. And finally, at the end of the summer, he gave me a, a part-time job as a law clerk for $5 an hour. <laughs> and they allowed you, this is 1974, I was allowed as a full-time student to work 20 hours a week. I probably worked 80 hours a week. And I, I was there all the time. I knew this was my, my chance, and I 
gave it everything I had. All right, I'm going to stop you. So relentlessness is probably the word to describe that, right? I'm going to call you 17 times. I'm going to go work for free. I'm then going to work for $5 an hour. And people that know you that I've interacted with will say, yeah, David is relentless. But I would classify it as grit. Um, And grit is a buzzword today. Uh, There's a woman that studies uh, grit at one of the schools that rejected you, University of Pennsylvania. Um, (laughs) Where is that? (laughs) So Angela Duckworth studies grit, wrote a book about grit, uh, best-selling book. And she defines grit as passion and perseverance for long-term goals. And when, we, when, we, when you think about your journey, it's, there's a passion towards sports, but there's also this perseverance to say, I'm going to figure out a way to get there. There's a grittiness to you. Would you agree with the grit concept? And you also kind of made a face when I said relentless because there was something about relentlessness that didn't resonate with you. You know, it's funny. Like, I, I think I would consider I'm a very passionate person. You know, I'm like a person who's like, all on, roll off. I'm not a politician who could look someone they don't like in the eye and act like they're best friends. People I like, they know I like them. People I don't like, I don't try to fake it. And so I'd say it's, I think relentlessness to me implies a person who's like a grind or a grit. And I think I'm talented. I think I have talent. I think I've got, but I'm very, very goal oriented. And it's like my, like my mom's expression. I set a goal for myself and I just couldn't accept not reaching my goal until, unless someone told me you absolutely cannot, you know, be a, you're bald and you can't be in sports. Uh, and so I just, I just kept pursuing. I'm like a, a boxer; you keep knocking down, and I, I believe I'm going to knock you out. It may take me ten rounds, may take me thirty rounds. And while I guess you could say that that defines being relentless, to me it, it's just I had a passion. I just really wanted to pursue this until. I was absolutely convinced that I couldn't do it. And I didn't believe that I couldn't do it. All right, so now we're getting the good stuff. So let me jump in. So first of all, I love that you said the word grind because grind is a term that basketball players use, golfers use, hockey players use, wrestlers use. Name a sport, they'll say, we just got to grind out that win. I think it's bullshit. Um, Grind, to me, like nobody should go through their life grinding, okay? Correct. Correct. Now... That doesn't mean I don't believe in work ethic. That doesn't mean that I don't think you should work your ass off and at times take a job for free or prove yourself or whatever it might be. But we are we we crisscross grit and grind. Uh, actually, the Memphis Grizzlies call it grit and grind. And I think grit to me. So she Duckworth defines grit as passion and perseverance for long term goals. That's her definition. The dictionary's definition is courage and resolve, strength of character, and. Courage and resolve, strength of character. Knowing who I am is my character, and I have strength in knowing who I am. Then I have the courage to keep going and the resolve to keep finding a way because I'm goal-oriented and I know that's where I want to go. I'll tell you a story. Go ahead. Let me define it a different way. So when I wrote my book, The Ball Truth, I wrote that um, I believe the vast majority of people in society look at obstacles in their path to success as barriers. They see difficult to get into a college or only a small amount of people get into a country club. You have requirements in college, you know, you have to take science or you take language, they don't think they can do that. And they don't believe they can they can get through the barriers. 
Really successful people see barriers as hurdles. They're going to either jump over them, they're going to run around them, they're going to knock them down. It's like asking a great golfer, how do you get over the water? And he says, what water? He didn't even see the water hazard. And, and so when you use the word grind or grit, I think that really successful people have a talent and they find a creative way to overcome the obstacles in their path. One year, um, I was in New York with Coach K and I had just done his first ever contract with Duke University. And he got a very significant increase in his compensation. He was giving a speech to the uh, wealth advisors at Morgan Stanley, uh, maybe a thousand of them. He was phenomenal. And he basically said the same thing in a speech, that successful people don't look at, at obstacles as walls or barriers. They look at them as impediments that they're going to overcome. And so we go to dinner afterwards at a really nice Italian restaurant uh, on the west side, Central Park West. And he said to me, gosh, David, how on earth were you able to make such a major change in my contract? I said, Coach, I just took your advice. I didn't look at obstacles as barriers. I looked at them as impediments and found a way to overcome. And I think, and so it's, I think we're parsing words, but I think that the connotation of grinding and perseverance implies a person that's just going to wear you down. And I think really successful people get to their goals because they have a vision of how to get there that is a less resist. Has, they, they learn to overcome the obstacles. They find a path of less resistance creatively. Um, and that that's more talent than sheer energy. I mean, a, a great athlete finds a way to perform at a very high level by using less energy. He doesn't necessarily use more energy. He finds a way to conserve his energy. I just read a great book called Boys in the Boat, about the University of Washington rowing team winning the 19th. You're the second person to mention that, that book to me today. Great, great book. And they talk about rowing, how the University of Washington learned to drop back at the beginning of the race and have a lower or, uh, rowing count. Maybe they were rowing at 34 and the other boat was rowing at 40. And when they got to like the, the last part of the race... The boat at 40, they were run out of gas, and the Washington learned at that point, that's when they put the final kick in. And so, is that grind or talent? I think that that's, that's talent, it's, inte- it's intelligence, it's managing your own talent in a way to maximize what you bring to the table. I like to say, I love movies, I always like to say that I come from the Clint Eastwood School of Business. A man's got to know his limitations, and I'm very well aware of mine. Um, what are they? I mean, I have many limitations. I think I'm, I think that, as I say, I think I'm not a very good politician. I don't try to um, mask my feelings. I almost want to, like, throw them out and say, yeah, I don't like you, but we have to do business together. Uh, I'm a nut for loyalty. I think sometimes I take it to an extreme. I expect very high-level loyalty from my clients and my friends. It's very hard for me to accept people that cross the line of loyalty. Um, but I think I have a pretty good understanding of who I am. I'm very introspective that way. I would imagine one of your weaknesses goes back to how you described your mom in the sense of being a perfectionist. And perfectionism, when I ask pro athletes, do they consider themselves to be a perfectionist? I would say 95% of them say, yes, they consider themselves to be a perfectionist. Now, whether that's truly the case or that's their perception is debatable. And the whole idea of a perfectionist is 
ridiculous because a perfectionist can never achieve what they actually want to be as opposed to a lawyer or a psychologist. You can't become a perfectionist because you're never actually going to be there. Um, but the question is, seems like if I could put it in very simple terms, ask two students in high school, what's your goal in this class? And one says, you know, I'd be happy if I got a B. I'd never be happy if I got a B. Now, I've gotten Bs. You know, you don't always get an A. But the idea you say, like, I'm going to say I want to get a B, so if I don't get an A, I'm not going to be unhappy. I'm going to be unhappy if I don't get an A. And I want to admit to myself before I start, I'm not going to be happy if I don't get an A. I'm going to make the best of it. I'll try to rebound and maybe take the course again or take an advanced course on the same topic and see if I can get an A. But I think that I think that most people who are really goal-oriented are never going to be happy not to get an A. They're going to try to find a way to get an A. Um, and I, that's what, that's, I think, the definition of my mom's mantra, always shoot for the stars, to say that you're going to be unhappy being, not being a starter. If you ask every guy in the NBA, would you be happy? Now, of course, most guys, only 400 players in the NBA, most guys aren't going to go from high school to college to the NBA even if they're the 15th guy on the team. But once you're on the team, if you said, would you be happy if you weren't a starter? I don't think dude, any guy would be happy if he wasn't a starter, even though he's made it to the NBA. And if you say you're unhappy, that you'd be happy not being a starter, I don't think you're being honest with yourself. So, so I'm going to go back to your story. And there's a million things we could go into, grit, grind, perfectionism. Now you're in my wheelhouse, and, and we, can, we can spit over Good. that. But I want to go back. It took 30 minutes. I know. <laughs> I'm a slow learner. I know. Uh, so, so I want to just go back. So, so you're now doing this work part-time and you've got a full-time gig. What's the transition to doing it full-time? Um, and just walk me through that process. Uh, Great story. So it's a story no matter how much preparation you have and no matter how much perseverance you have. You always need a little bit of luck. You need a pick, if you will, if I can use a sports term. So I worked the entire year at Dell Craigle Fenders and Benton Donald's firm. I worked my butt off 80 hours a week, making virtually no money. And I waited till after graduation, and finally he made me an offer for a full-time job. I learned later on that in April of that year, while I, I still was working part-time, they had made an offer to a, a lawyer, uh, I think had gone to Princeton, a uh, really nice guy uh, who loved tennis, played tennis, and he had accepted another offer at a small firm in New Jersey. And they said, are you kidding? You're going to work for this piddly firm in New Jersey when you can work for all these tennis players? He said, look, I'd love to work for you guys, but I already made a commitment. And I think his name was Don Tansy. And but for his commitment and the fact the honors commitment, they never would offer me a job. But because he wouldn't undo his renege on his commitment, they finally sort of reluctantly offered me a job. And I can remember like this was yesterday, Brian. Donald said, I want to take you to lunch tomorrow and discuss your employment, you know, your future employment. I was really excited, very, a little nervous. I thought lunch meant going to lunch like at 12.30, maybe 1 o'clock. So I really, the day before, I got most of my stuff done. By about 4 o'clock, we still haven't gone to lunch yet. I was waxing my desk. <laughs> I was done. I had finished everything I could possibly do. And Donald finally said, come on. Like, what are you waiting for? Let's go to lunch. And we went to this hamburger place on 18th and I called The Ranch. I had the best half-pound hamburgers in Washington. And uh, over lunch, he said, look, you worked really hard. You've done a good job. We'd like to make you an offer to be an associate. We'd like to offer you $13,000 a year. I was stupefied. I said, Donald, you know, I'm really excited to get an offer, but 
I'm sure you know that people work for the government, GS-11s are making like $17,000, $18,000. And the sports industry was so small and so new and pro service in such an isolated area, he had no clue to what people were making. He never really got a clue to what people were making the entire time I worked there. And he said, really? He said, well, you know, that's interesting, but here at Del Craigle, our starting associates, I was the only one, started 13000 mm. And I'm sitting here thinking, wow, I waited the entire year to get an offer. He's like grossly lowballing me. Um, do I want to just like be prideful and walk away, or do you want to follow your dreams? So I told him, never forget, I told him, look, my father told me, you know, prove what you're worth. So I'm going to accept your offer, and I'm going to do everything in my power to prove to you that I'm worth more than 13000 which was less than the secretaries were making. And I would say without being comical that in the 17 years I worked for Donald, I was always relatively at $13,000. And I always knew that I had the leverage to get more money. But I told him for most of my 17 years there that I never wanted to be in a relationship with someone who had to put a gun to their head to be fair. And I told him, I'll stay here forever as long as I never had to put a gun to your head to be fair. And as long as I ever find out that someone's making more money than I am, don't say I'm sorry, don't say I didn't know. And so at the end of 17 years, he failed both conditions. <laughs> I walked away, I resigned with a non-compete, and he immediately came to my office and offered me $800,000 a year when I was making 230. Hmm. And I said, well, if I'm worth 800, why am I making 230? And I didn't negotiate, I just left. And with that, I'm gonna hit the pause button on our conversation. Uh, we have another hour's worth of talk. So uh, I'm going to save the second half so it's more digestible for you all. And I will get that up on iTunes as soon as possible. But I just want to thank David for coming on and, and giving us some insight into his journey, uh, his family, his upbringing, and also the dynamics that existed when he first started out and what he had to do to sort of carve his own path and the process and the journey that he took dealing with failure, dealing with rejection, and also being gritty or relentless or whatever you want to call it. So I think he gave some really interesting perspective into how he got into the business and how he got started. And for part two, we'll get more into his growth of his business and how he was able to really build one of the biggest sports agencies that we've ever seen and really change the game in a lot of ways. Uh, he's a very innovative guy and creative guy, and that will come through in, our, in the second half of our conversation. Uh, if you want to learn more about David, I think the best place to do that is his book. His book is called The Bald Truth. You can get it on Amazon. That's where I found it. Uh, I gave it a read. It was really an easy read, uh, and there's a lot of great stories in there of athletes that you've heard of. So give that a read, and we will continue the conversation next time. Talk to you again real soon.